Hello there. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 46, No Easy Way Out. In the last two episodes, we covered the Second Punic War overseas in Spain and Sicily. Today, we return to Italy to discover what the embattled Hannibal has done in the interim. When we last left Hannibal, he had discovered that the defection of Capua was at best a mixed blessing. The drastic change of allegiance may have served as a fantastic PR stunt, but practically it yielded few good results. In his eagerness to induce the Capuans to revolt, Hannibal had conceded control of the city, her armies, and her recruitable population to the local government, meaning that he could only exercise limited direction over the vast assets Capua could have brought to bear in the war. Additionally, by tying himself to a specific city in Italy, Hannibal was now forced onto the defense, protecting his new ally against relentless Roman reprisals. Even so, the Carthaginian outlook in 215 BC could still be optimistic. Rome's manpower, although seemingly limitless, had suffered three shocking defeats. Her generals refused to meet Hannibal in battle, and several other Italian communities joined the ad hoc Carthaginian alliance by persuasion or force. A festering revolt in Sardinia was on the verge of breaking out into the open, and Hannibal's prospects improved even further when envoys from Philip V of Macedon suddenly arrived at his camp in Campania. As we remember from all the way back in episode 16, Alexander's homeland of Macedon had fluctuated as but one pawn among many in the murky fallout following the great conqueror's death. Consolidated into a personal fiefdom by Alexander's septuagenarian general Antigonus the One-Eyed, Macedon was one of the few provinces that Antigonus's son and successor, Demetrius the Besieger, was able to reclaim following the climactic battle of Ipsus. Following a complicated series of coups, counter-coups, and conflicts over the next century, Philip V now ruled Macedon as the head of the Antigonid dynasty. Handsome, charismatic, and courageous, the 27-year-old Philip had already made a name for himself during the Social War in Greece when he had led a coalition of Greek cities against the Aetolian League, which was backed by a resurgent Sparta. The successful conclusion of this conflict not only brought Philip great prestige, but also freed him to become involved in the Second Punic War. According to Livy, Philip, quote, was particularly concerned in its progress because of his proximity to Italy and the fact that he was separated from it only by the Ionian Sea. End quote. Hearing of Hannibal's resounding victory at Cannae, Philip eagerly dispatched envoys to hammer out an alliance with the Carthaginians in order to secure Macedon's position in the imminent post Roman world. Landing near Croton, Philip's diplomats fell in with the local Roman praetor, Lavinius, who questioned them closely. Xenophanes, the leader of the delegation, boldly claimed that the envoys had come to make an alliance with Rome, and the thoroughly duped Lavinius sped them on their way, which, unbeknownst to him, led straight to Hannibal's camp. Here, the parties quickly came to a mutual understanding. Polybius claims to have transcribed a copy of the treaty between the Macedonians and Carthaginians, the terms of which were as follows. Each side would be a friend to the other and aid each other against their common enemies. 
Any peace settlement with Rome would be mutual, and Philip would be given control of Rome's province of Illyria following her defeat. According to historian Richard Miles, the treaty is interesting from a historical standpoint since it, quote, shows clear associations with the diplomatic language and conventions that had existed in the Near East for millennia, proving that the Levantine roots of the city still exerted a heavy influence on traditional aspects of state business. Appended to the treaty was a list of Carthaginian gods who acted as divine witnesses to the agreement, organized into three presumably hierarchical celestial triads. End quote. Although still debated, most scholars agree that the top triad consisted of Baal Haman, Tanit, and Reshef, the second Astar, Melkart, and Eshmon, and the third Baal Safon, Hadad, and Baal Malaj. The treaty is also noteworthy in that several representatives of the Carthaginian Senate are mentioned in the treaty text. As we remember from prior episodes, Hannibal had traditionally acted with relative autonomy when in the field, to the point that he ruled Spain as a de facto king prior to the Second Punic War. Now, however, cut off from reinforcements from his power base in Spain, he had become increasingly dependent on money and supplies from Carthage. With this greater commitment of resources likely came stronger cords of control, which is a likely explanation for the presence of these Carthaginian dignitaries. Further, Philip's status as king of one of the most powerful successor kingdoms likely required direct negotiations with diplomats from Carthage as opposed to a mere general, however great the latter might be. Despite the theoretical potential of this alliance and the unease with which Roman contemporaries viewed it, Events from the outset revealed it contained more smoke than fire. Indeed, on the way back to Macedon, the envoys fell in once again with Roman patrols, this time on the high seas. Although Xenophanes tried his trick again, the presence of Carthaginian emissaries quickly dissipated any doubts the Romans may have had about the delegation's intentions. A copy of the treaty on their ship, the same one which Polybius claims to have transcribed, sealed the envoy's fate, and they were sent to Rome for further questioning. In 214 BC, Philip marched to besiege the Roman-allied city of Apollonia in Illyria. Fearing that if the city fell, Philip would use it as a base to raid across the sea, the Roman commander on the scene dispatched a small assault force consisting of a few warships and 2,000 picked legionaries. Landing at Apollonia, the Romans found the Macedonians completely unprepared, and they stormed Philip's camp with little serious resistance. The king himself had to resort to flight, half-naked, having been blown out of bed by the sudden arrival of the Romans. When a secondary Roman force arrived to hem Philip in from the sea, the king gave up all pretense of fighting, burned his ships, and retreated overland through the mountains back to Macedonia. Despite the success of this strike force, Rome still could not spare any major resources to counteract Philip's machinations in the east due to heavy commitments in Spain and Sicily. Nonetheless, the Senate had grave doubts about leaving the monarch of one of the most powerful Hellenic kingdoms with a free hand. Thus, Rome pursued a strategy of containment against Macedon, allying first with Philip's age-old enemy, the Aetolian League, and later with Attalus I of Pergamum. 
The constant warfare on his flanks prevented Philip from interceding in a meaningful way in the Italian war, strangling the potential power of the Macedonian-Carthaginian alliance before the ink was dry. Instead, Rome was able to negotiate a ceasefire with Macedon in 205 BC. She would not forget Philip's sins, but judgment would have to wait until Italy had been freed from the threat of Hannibal. The long-anticipated revolt in Sardinia petered out in a similarly spectacular fashion. Unlike the proxy war strategy adopted against Macedon, Rome responded vigorously to the threat of losing Sardinia. The reasons for this decisive response were likely twofold. First, Sardinia served as an important grain producer, and with the damage to Roman agriculture and the disordered state of Sicily, securing overseas food supplies was vital to maintaining Rome's war effort. Second, if they could retake Sardinia, the Carthaginians would have a base to launch raids and funnel reinforcements to Hannibal. Therefore, when word reached the Senate of the troubled state of the island, they immediately dispatched the legendary Titus Manlius Torquatus with 5,000 foot and 400 horse to meet the challenge. Joining forces with the island garrison, Manlius marched into the mountainous interior to confront the wild tribesmen who had gathered under a local noble named Hampsacora. Hampsacora's son, Hostus, foolishly left the shelter of the mountains to fight the Romans in the hills and lost 3,000 casualties for his trouble. Things brightened briefly for the rebels when an army under a Carthaginian general with a flattering moniker of Hasdrubal the Bald arrived with 10,000 soldiers. After some indecisive skirmishing, the two armies met at an unknown location a few miles north of Carolus. In the battle which followed, the native Sardinians, unused to fighting formal battles against heavily armed legionaries, fled en masse, leaving the Carthaginian flanks exposed. Though these fought stubbornly, Manlius surrounded nearly all of the survivors. The staggering number of dead and captured signaled an end to the revolt. 12,000 Sardinians and Carthaginians had fallen, with 3,700 prisoners taken, among whom were the hapless Hasdrubal the Bald, as well as other noblemen, some of whom were related to Hannibal himself. Hamsacora fled into the mountains and later committed suicide rather than fall into Roman hands, leaving Rome once again in complete control of the island. These twin blows against the Carthaginian war effort, in addition to the setbacks in Spain and Sicily, crushed Hannibal's hopes of opening a new supply corridor overseas. Meanwhile, the war in Italy had its own troubles. Despite Hannibal successfully mauling multiple Roman field armies at the Battle of Salaris and two separate battles at Herdonia, Capua remained isolated and hard-pressed. No matter how many battles he might win, Hannibal was still chained to Capua, for better or worse. Now, having bottled Hannibal up in southern Italy, it seemed that all the Romans had to do was to run out the clock. In 211 BC, however, Fortune once again smiled upon the beleaguered Carthaginians. Hostages from Tarentum had recently tried to escape from Roman hands, and the Romans, upon recapturing them, put the fugitives to death. This extremely severe punishment 
goaded a cabal of 13 Tarentine nobles to hatch a plot to deliver their city to Hannibal. Traveling secretly to his camp, the Tarentines soon struck a deal with the eager Carthaginians. One of the conspirators, Philomenius, was a renowned hunter, and he made it his habit to hunt after dark in the weeks following his interview with Hannibal. When he returned from his hunts, he would leave a present of some game to the Roman guards at the gate, and these became so familiar with his movements that they would open the gate for him whenever he whistled. Now that the trap was laid, Hannibal himself led 10,000 men to the neighborhood of Tarentum. In the dead of night, Philomenius appeared at the gate with a huge boar. When the sentries heard his whistle, they let him in, and as they turned to admire the beast, Philomenius struck them down with his hunting spear and admitted the waiting Carthaginians. Chaos and confusion reigned in the city streets, with the Tarentines believing that the Romans had betrayed them and the Romans believing the opposite. The Roman commander retreated to the citadel with the surviving members of his garrison. Dawn revealed the true nature of things, and Hannibal, calling the citizens together, gave his usual speech about Italian liberation and that he had given orders to respect their lives and freedom. Thus, with one blow, Tarentum and her beautiful harbor had fallen into his hands. Or had it? Exultation soon turned to disappointment when Hannibal realized that the Romans still held out in the city's citadel. Situated on a peninsula which dominated the harbor, this stronghold could deny Hannibal effective use of the port so long as it remained in enemy hands. To make matters worse, there was no likelihood of reducing the fortress by starvation due to Roman mastery of the sea, and Hannibal could ill spare troops or supplies to continue a long siege. Confronted by the stark realities of his position, Hannibal decided to build a giant earthen wall to block off the citadel from the city. Despite Roman efforts to thwart this, the Carthaginians and Tarentines managed to build a wall which protected the city proper from the citadel. This done, Hannibal called the Tarentine leaders together and advised them that, since he could not take the stronghold by assault and a blockade was unfeasible, they would need to find a way to cut off the fortress from the outside world. Understandably irritated, the Tarentine leaders tersely responded that, quote, to give advice was not enough, means must also be provided to carry it out, end quote. Where was the vaunted Carthaginian navy that could aid them in subduing the citadel? Having no answer to this, Hannibal struck upon the ingenious proposal of transporting the Tarentine warships currently bottled up in the harbor, by land instead. Delighted with the proposal, the Tarentines repaired the roads and sent work crews to haul the ships to their destination. So enthusiastic were the workers, reports Livy, that the entire operation was completed within a few days' time, and the Tarentines now outflanked the Romans. Despite this tactical coup, Hannibal had more pressing concerns. In 211 BC, the Romans had blockaded Capua so effectively that the city was staring starvation in the face. Changes in Roman tactics allowed for the legionaries to cope with the superior Campanian cavalry, and Capua's fall seemed imminent unless Hannibal intervened. Marching to the city, he fought an indecisive action against the besiegers, 
with the only moment of note being when his elephants were killed in a ditch and the combatants struggled on top of their carcasses. This abortive attempt to relieve the city led Hannibal to at last do what he had failed to do after Cannae, march on Rome. When news reached the Senate of Hannibal's approach towards the city, a furious debate broke out. Publius Cornelius Scipio Asina, who had inherited his father's unfortunate nickname, meaning she-donkey, vigorously argued that all Rome's generals and armies should be recalled to defend the capital. Fabius Maximus scorned this idea, arguing that if Hannibal had not dared to march on Rome after Cannae, what were the odds he could take it now with multiple Roman armies in the field? After a heated discussion, the senators at last deferred the decision to the generals in the field. These agreed to send Fulvius Flaccus, with 15,000 men and 1,000 horse, to defend the capital, while the remainder of the Roman army maintained the siege of Capua. Among the common people, the coming of Hannibal provoked an uproar in the city. In the words of Livy, quote, Panic ensued. The first reception of the news was bad enough, but worse confusion was caused when it was spread everywhere by exaggerated rumors, adding fiction to fact, till the whole city was in turmoil. In private houses, women could be heard weeping and wailing. They also poured out into the streets and ran aimlessly among the shrines of the gods, sweeping the altars with their loosened hair, or kneeling, or raising their palms to the gods in heaven with prayers that they might save the city from the enemy's hands and keep inviolate Roman mothers and their little children. End quote. Having suffered so much already at the hands of Hannibal and his battle-hardened Carthaginians, it is no wonder that the families of Rome trembled at the approach of their most hated enemy. Meanwhile, Hannibal, having deposited most of his force three miles from Rome, rode out with a reconnaissance force of 2,000 horsemen to the Colline Gate of the city. When Fulvius saw the easy and careless manner in which Hannibal approached the very threshold of Rome, he angrily dispatched his own group of horsemen to drive them off. A sharp skirmish began among the narrow valleys, gardens, tombs, and sunken lanes surrounding the city, and Fulvius ordered a reserve of 1,200 Numidian deserters to ride out to aid the Roman cavalry. Unfortunately for the Numidians, the Roman citizens mistook them for foes and cried that the enemy already held the Aventine Hill within the city itself. This false report sent shockwaves through the civilian population, who rushed through the streets, blocking the road and pelting the supposed enemy cavalry with stones and missiles. So great was the chaos that the Senate decreed that any man who had held the office of dictator, consul, or censor was immediately invested with full military authority to restore order in the city. After this dramatic opening, what followed in the quote-unquote siege of Rome proved an anticlimax. Twice in the following days, the Romans marched out to meet Hannibal in the open. Twice, both armies were driven to leave the field due to a torrential hailstorm. Many Carthaginians took this as a bad omen, and Hannibal reportedly quipped that, quote, he had twice missed capturing Rome, once because he lacked the will, and then because he had missed his chance, end quote. Besides these supernatural portents, two other events dampened his courage. The first was the news that the Senate had sent scheduled reinforcements onto Spain, even though the Carthaginians were at their very walls. 
The second had a similar effect. This was the news that the land on which Hannibal encamped had been auctioned off for full price, demonstrating how little the Romans feared his siege. Thus, after pillaging the countryside in a fit of pique, Hannibal retired from the Eternal City. Fate would not be so kind to Capua. Although Hannibal's diversion had drawn off Fulvius with 16,000 men, those that remained were more than sufficient to maintain a close blockade. The Carthaginian officers on the scene wrote a scathing letter to Hannibal, accusing him of abandoning them and Capua, but their messengers were captured and sent back to the city with their hands cut off. The sight of this new atrocity at last broke the back of Capuan resistance. The populace thronged for surrender, the gates were opened, and the city turned over to Rome's tender mercies. Many Capuan senators, believing themselves ruined forever, took poison the night before the surrender. Others the next day might have wished they had done the same, when Fulvius, having returned from Rome, ordered their scourging and execution. Even when letters arrived from the Senate ordering him to bring the senators to Rome for judgment, Fulvius placed the letter unopened in his cloak and continued with the executions. Three hundred surviving nobles were imprisoned, while the rest of the citizens were sold into slavery. All land and public buildings became property of the Roman people. The Capuan Senate was dissolved, and Capua ceased to be a city in any recognizable sense. Livy concludes his description of Capua's fate with barely concealed glee. Quote, the settlement of Capuan affairs was thus in every respect admirable. The most guilty were promptly and severely punished. The mass of free citizens was dispersed and had no hope of return. Innocent buildings and city walls were spared the useless savagery of fire and demolition. And Rome, besides profiting by the city's preservation, was able to appear before her allies in the guise of a merciful conqueror. The enemy was compelled to admit the power of Rome to exact punishment from treacherous allies and the helplessness of Hannibal to defend those whom he had taken under his protection. End quote. The fall of Capua signaled a domino effect in southern Italy. Various other Italian communities, cowed by Rome's quote-unquote merciful treatment of Capua, returned to their old allegiance. In 209 BC, Tarentum also fell, this time to Roman trickery, when a lovesick Brutian traitor opened the gates in an attempt to curry favor with his Roman mistress. Hemmed in by the besiegers and the citadel, which had remained untaken despite the best efforts of the Tarentine navy, the citizens stood no chance. An indiscriminate slaughter followed, after which the Romans tallied their plunder. 30,000 slaves, 3,800 pounds of gold, an immense quantity of silver, and countless works of art. When asked what he wished to be done with the statues of the Tarentine gods, Fabius Maximus, who had once again returned to command, quipped that the Tarentines could keep their gods, since the deities were clearly angry with them. If all this seems like a mess, that's because it was one. In the latter stages of the Italian campaign, the revolving wheel of fortune moves so fast that it becomes difficult to keep up with it. Livy sums up this phase of the struggle succinctly, saying, quote, At no other period of the war were both the Romans and Carthaginians less sure of what the future might bring, or more involved in the rapid alternations of failure and success. Outside Italy, 
Distress at the Spanish reverses had been balanced for the Romans by joy at their victory in Sicily. In Italy itself, the Carthaginian capture of Tarentum, a bitter blow and a serious loss, was offset by the unexpected satisfaction of continuing to hold the citadel, while the sudden and dreadful alarm caused by Hannibal at the gates of Rome was turned a few days later into rejoicing at the fall of Capua. So it was that fortune held her scales. For both sides, everything hung in the balance. It was as if, with all still to win and all to lose, they were only then beginning the war. End quote. Yet it was clear which way those scales were trending. With the failure of the Macedonian alliance, the crushing of the Sardinian rebellion, the aborted march on Rome, and the capture of Capua and Tarentum, it seemed that Hannibal's luck had abandoned him at last. One final chance would be offered him, though, in the form of his brother, Hasdrubal. Having escaped from Spain and followed in his brother's footsteps through Gaul and the Alps, Hasdrubal appeared in Italy in 207 BC to aid his brother. If they could join forces, these two scions of Hamilcar Barca might just be able to revive Carthaginian hopes in Italy. Next time, we will cover the attempted meeting of the brothers and the Battle of the Mataris. Until then, take care and read more history.